Well, we are in Luke's Gospel, and we started chapter 5 last week, um, where Jesus tells Peter to throw his net over the side of uh, the boat, and he has a miraculous catch of fish, and then Jesus says, I'm going to make you fishers of men. And we've been going kind of slowly through the Gospel of Luke. Today, I'm going to pick it up, and we're going to cover all the rest of Luke chapter 5. And we're going to see that Jesus encounters three uh, different people. First of all, a leper, not a leaper, a leper, um, a paralytic, and a tax collector. So that's our little three-point outline. We're going to see what happens when Jesus encounters these three people. And... You may remember last week, I pointed out that in John's gospel, John doesn't call healings miracles. He calls them signs. A a miracle is a supernatural happening that we might not be able to explain. A sign, in this case, is a supernatural uh, miracle, a supernatural event, but it it pictures something deeper than just, oh, that's amazing. Something is being communicated. So as we go through each of these events, we want to ask, what's the deeper meaning that's going on here? All right, so let's, let's begin by looking at Jesus' encounter with the leper. It says, while he was in one of the cities, one of the cities around the Sea of Galilee, that is, there came a man full of leprosy. Now, um, if I were to show you some pictures of what leprosy does to a picture, or to a person, some of you would have to get up and leave. Uh, Destroys the face, and the eyes are eaten away, and the lips are eaten away, and there's tumors. Um, it, It is a horrible defiguring uh, disease, and the only thing we know here is that this man didn't just have leprosy, but he was full of leprosy. This was a horrible condition. And when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and begged him, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. And he charged him to tell no one. There's different theories as to why. Why did Jesus say, don't tell anyone? Um, Just one real simple thing is, and we're going to see in the next paragraph, Uh, He could hardly get from town to town because the crowds were so big. There's also the idea that they didn't really fully understand his messiahship and they would try to make him into a king. So um, he's, he's saying, keep this quiet, okay? But go and show yourself to the priest and make an offering for your cleansing as Moses commanded for a proof to them what, what's going on here? Well, when uh, you had leprosy, you were kicked out of 
uh, public life. You were contagious. So you were no longer part of the worshiping community. And the keepers of the cleanliness of the community were the priests. They were actually, uh, in essence, the, uh, the dermatologists who would examine the leprosy to determine whether the person still had leprosy or had been healed of leprosy. So Jesus is, in essence, saying, go get an official diagnosis from the priest so you can be restored to the worshiping community. Okay. Leprosy was horrible. Lepers were the ultimate forsaken people. Like I said, physically their skin was rotting away. Socially, they were not allowed to be with the people. In Leviticus, it says, if a, a leper is unclean, he shall live alone. His dwelling shall be outside the camp. And then, of course, uh, the Jewish people added all kinds of, of extra laws to this. And one of the laws was on a windy day, a leper had to stay 150 feet away from anybody else. Okay, So imagine how isolated a leper would be. And then many people viewed leprosy as a curse from God. Right? You have that disease because you must have done something wrong. You are under God's curse. Now, there's no connection biblically that says that. But that's what people thought. Okay. So, the amazing thing here is this. Two words. Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him. Why did Jesus touch him? Well, I, I think you could say, you know, it has to do with compassion. This guy hasn't been touched maybe in years, and Jesus is showing compassion. That's probably true. But I think Luke chapter 5, the whole chapter, is teaching us something about ministry. Jesus is teaching us about how to minister to people. Now, Leprosy was contagious. You didn't go around touching contagious people. But Jesus touches him, and then he commissions his apostles to do the same. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. Imagine being with that group of apostles, and Jesus says, all right, I'm sending you out now. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers. And I see Peter going, uh, question? Are, are, are we to heal the lepers the way you heal the leper? Yeah. We're to, we're to touch the lepers? Yeah. What's he challenging us to do? Rather than running from the unclean, I'm calling you to enter into their world, not to fear, not to run, but to love, 
to touch and embrace them. And in other words, I think Jesus is challenging our caution. Jesus is challenging our security and our comfort. Right? And I think this principle, while it applies to the sick and the poor and the marginalized, it also applies to sinners. Because in this same chapter, Jesus touches and sits down and eats with a tax collector. And that was unheard of. So here's what I think we're to get out of this. God calls us to leave the comfortable, clean, safe Christian world and enter into lives that are messy and unclean and even dangerous. He's challenging our caution. Now, whenever we discover a principle in Scripture, I, as a teacher, I think, how could I illustrate this? Who from church history uh, would be a good example of this? And I didn't have to think long. I thought of our own missionaries. Nichols, Nash's, DeCregers, um, three families we support who've left the comfort of our country and have gone amongst the poorest in the world, the sickest in the world, and I guess you could say the, the, the most spiritually oppressed. And I could talk about any one of them, uh, but this last week was Todd DeCregor's three-year anniversary of when he died. So for those of you who don't know, um, it's a picture of the DeCregor family. Um, the oldest boy, William, just is in his first year at a college at Cedarville, and uh, that's Jennifer, and the other three boys are, are still over in Togo. So Todd, the dad, got a medical education here in America. He could have made a boodle of money, but he said, Lord, where in, on the planet do they lack medical care? And they did some research and found out that uh, Togo, West Africa, is one of the poorest places on the planet. It's a tough place. In the summer, it's 104 degrees. They don't have health care. And um, he moved his family over to southern Togo. And that's the Christian part of the country and worked in a mission hospital and then they realized there's uh, the Muslim North is even more needy and poor and they said let's build a hospital in the North so they built the Hospital of Hope it opened in uh, February of 2015 one year later to the day Todd died. How did he die? But touching someone during surgery, he got blood on him, and he died. It was a horrible death. 
kind of an Ebola-like disease. And you say, see, it's dangerous. You shouldn't have gone. Well, he, he was wearing gloves and a mask. Um, same thing could have happened here at Del Nor. Right? But then the question is, what are they going to do? I think everything inside of our humanity says, don't go back, don't go back. But they went back, and they're there now. And um, I think this is, is this Grant? He is, uh, I think, a junior in high school. You know what he does? He draws blood. And uh, they, uh, the older one assists in surgery, and the other one works in the lab. And you say, isn't it dangerous? Yeah. And I think their attitude is, it's dangerous, and if we perish, we perish. So, um, now the danger in giving a dramatic illustration like this is it's pretty stark. You go, okay, so you're challenging me to leave America and go draw blood. I, that's a, kind of a big, it's a big jump, right? Is there any middle ground? Yeah. Just think of your own life. Where are there hurting people who are maybe neglected? Um, i share a, a simple little story with you. You know, uh, during Christmas, we, uh, we, we went to sing at a couple of nursing homes. And one of the nursing homes is right in Batavia, uh, Heritage Woods. That's where Fern is. And I, I felt like talking to the, the director of the nursing home, and I, sa- I said, Do you, would you be open to a Bible study here? Oh, yeah, that would be great. And then um, I shared uh, in prayer time, uh, with, with Rita. Where's Rita? Right there's Rita. I said, Rita, you know, uh, what do you think of, of you and I maybe starting a Bible study at Heritage Woods? And immediately her response was, I'm so busy. I, I don't think I have time. And then after the service, she came out like this. <laughs> she said, God told me to, to do that Bible study, right? And... Um, so now there's a every other week Bible study at Heritage Woods, a little group of 95-year-old ladies. Um, nobody else is touching them, being with them. It, it's, it, it, it's a challenge. It, it takes time to enter into their world. You know, there's the food pantry that we do. Um, but, but just think through in your life. Where might Jesus be challenging you to leave the comfortable and enter into the lives of those who maybe the rest of the world would just see as unclean? All right, so there's, there's lesson number one. Now, let's move to lesson number two, the paralytic. Verse 15, but now even more, the report about him went abroad and great crowds gathered to hear him and to be healed of their infirmities. But he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. 
On one of those days, as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea, and Judah, uh, Judea, <laughs> and from Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with him to heal. And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed. And they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. Now you talk about a dramatic moment. Jesus is teaching, the tiles uh, move apart, and they lower this paralyzed man down in front of Jesus. And the big moment comes, and when he saw their faith, he said, now you would think he would say, get up, you're healed. But what he says is, man, your sins are forgiven you. Oh, that had to be disappointing. We wanted to see a healing. And on top of that, he's blaspheming in the minds of the Pharisees. Right? Um, you know, if, if uh, you sin against me, I have the authority to forgive you your sin against me. But if uh, Elvis sins against Brian, I can't walk up and say, hey, Elvis, I forgive you of your sin against Brian. I mean, who am I to do that? And who am I to say you, that you are forgiven between you and God? So the Pharisees are saying, what do you mean his sins are forgiven? You're blaspheming. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Ah, don't forget that. Okay. When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, why do you question in your hearts? Now, here's, here's the important thing we've got to get right. Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise and walk? Now, if you get the answer to that question wrong, you're going to misunderstand the whole point. It's actually easier to say, get up and walk, than to say, your sins are forgiven. Why? Because only God can forgive the man's sins. There were prophets in the Old Testament who could heal, but only God can forgive sins. So, the easier thing is to say your sins, uh, your, your uh, get up and walk. The harder thing is to say your sins are forgiven. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. In other words, that I'm God. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise pick up your bed and go home. And immediately he rose up before them and picked up what he had been laying on and went home glorifying God. And amazement seized them all and they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, we have seen extraordinary things today. Right. Now, it seems like we've covered this passage a number of times in the last several years. And I, I do think the main thing that we're to get out of it is that this isn't just another healing. 
but this is a claim to deity. Jesus is claiming, yes, I have the authority to forgive sins. I am God. But I want to point out another important point here. In our lesson, okay, we're disciples following Jesus. In our lessons about ministry, here's what I think we're to get out of this. Don't neglect people's eternities. Don't forget about the forgiveness of sin. A couple weeks ago I mentioned there's kind of an internal squabble uh, amongst evangelical Christians. Um, What is the church to be doing? And some would be, we're just to proclaim the gospel. And others would say, well, we're to be building hospitals and doing good works and and, uh, food pantries and, and so forth. And it's kind of turned into like a, a either or. And my point a couple weeks ago is that it needs to be a both and. We, Jesus said that you are salt and light. And he defined what light is. Light is when you do good works and let your, your light shine and people will praise your Father in heaven. And in other words... Uh, I would say that the platform upon which we earn the right to proclaim is a loving, changed life. Right? Parable of the Good Samaritan. Guy's laying in the road. The two religious people walk around him, but the man who stops and picks him up and takes him for help, he is the good neighbor. Okay? So, um, uh, let's not separate the two. But, but having clarified that, I think Jesus is making a point here. Let's not neglect people's salvation, their eternal condition. In essence, Jesus is saying, if I'm interpreting this properly, I'm going to do the lesser visible thing, heal a man, to show that I've done the greater invisible thing, forgive his sins. I think one group of people needs to be reminded that compassion for people involves caring for them, I think another group of people needs to be reminded that compassion for people, yes, while it involves caring for their physical needs, don't forget about their eternal condition. Lesson number two. Lesson number three, the tax collector. After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. So now we go from the poor, lonely, disabled leper and paralytic to the other end of the spectrum. Here's a rich, powerful man. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And we know that this man named Levi is Matthew, 
who actually becomes one of the 12 apostles and writes the Gospel of Matthew. And Levi made him a great feast in his house, and there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. Now, Matthew is miraculously converted to Christ, but he invites all his tax collector friends. I don't think they were all converted. Talk about a den of thieves. Right? Here's a bunch of people who made their living by using uh, the, the authority of the government to embezzle money from their own countrymen. They were the most despised of all, the tax collectors. So, of course, the Pharisees, they're going to have a problem. Pharisees, they're, they're the separated ones. They're all about separation. Don't get dirty with dirty people. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? I mean, what is, don't you know you need to be separate from the world? And Jesus answered them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I've not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. If I'm the doctor and they're sick, if I'm the Savior and they're hellbound, of course I'm going to leave my safe world and enter into their world. Now, there is a, 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 a... the question, how involved do you get in the world? Right? And I, I always like to, to use this as kind of a rule of thumb. You need to ask who's influencing whom. Who's influencing whom more? Now, if, if you're being sucked into uh, sinning and you're justifying a sinful lifestyle because Jesus ate with tax, then, then you're missing the point. They're influencing you more, okay? But on the other hand, you can be an influence upon them. Then leave your, your safe, comfortable world and shine your light in the darkness. Uh, it's been a while since I've, I've told this story, but uh, I think this is kind of a fun one. My first, when we first got married, we uh, went to this little town in Wisconsin called Clintonville. And there was a suburb of Clintonville called Marion. And they had a big factory, a plywood factory, and they heard that um, I was a magician. My tricks actually worked back then. Um, <laughs> so they, they were going to have a, a, ply, a plywood factory outdoor company picnic at the local park. And I said, all right, yeah, I'll come. And uh, I showed up, and... Um, Boy, the beer was flowing, and the cigarette smoke was heavy. And um, I started my act and uh, do a trick where I borrow a $100 bill, and I put it in an envelope, and I pretend I accidentally burn it up. 
Well, the guy wanted to fight me. And um, so I, I just, I brought that $100 bill back really quickly and got through the act and we got out of there alive, right? So then what I like to do is say, let's compare the company picnic to the church picnic. Church picnic, you know, usually we get a nice facility and everybody brings some nice food and uh, not a whole lot of smoke in the air, except maybe the elders, who knows. Um, but uh, there's usually prayer and a worship service and chicken and games. And so here's the question. If you could choose between going to your company picnic and your church picnic, where would you want to go? And I think most Christians would say, oh, I will choose the church picnic. And then the question would be, where would we find Jesus? And would we scold him for going to the company picnic? Right? And again, you have to decide who's influencing whom more. But I think this whole chapter challenges us to leave our safety and security and touch the leper. Okay. Now, um, it goes on. And they, the Pharisees, said to him, the disciples of John, John the Baptist, fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. So what, what's going on here? Followers of John the Baptist, they are very pious. They fast a lot. We fast a lot. But you're, you're at a tax collector party, and it's fasting day today. You should be, shouldn't you be fat? But you're eating the potato salad? What's the deal here? Right? Now, what's Jesus' answer? And Jesus said to them, Can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. You know, well, that's a strange answer. What's, what's, he, what's he saying here? Well, this is just a, a, another time when Jesus uses the opportunity to set himself apart as the Messiah. You know, there's a time for a funeral, and there's a time for a wedding reception. God has come to earth past the barbecue. Right? You don't understand. Why, why, are, why are we not fasting and walking around in sackcloth and ashes? Because the bridegroom is here. I'm not sure they understood what he was saying, but we understand him to say, it's time to celebrate because God is in your midst. That's what's going on there. And then... He tells a couple of parables. He also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new and the piece from the new will not match the old. Now, very, very rarely do we even sew patches on clothes today, but back then, if you got a hole in your 
clothes or a tear, uh, you, wouldn't buy, you wouldn't go to uh, the Jerusalem Walmart and get a new garment. You would patch it. And if you put a new piece of cloth on an already old shrunken garment, the new, when it shrinks, is going to tear the garment. So the point is simply this. Old and new don't mix. Okay? Old and new don't mix. He gives us a, a, a similar illustration. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins and it will be spilled and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. So um, old wineskins have already expanded. You put new wine in there and it's fermenting, the gases will poof, explode the wineskins. So new goes into new, old goes into old. Right? He's basically saying old and new don't mix. Now, there's a lot tied up in this, but he's saying, I'm bringing in a new thing. I'm bringing in the new covenant. And with the new covenant comes new ways of doing things. But you're stuck in the old ways. Okay? Uh, this last line, and no one after drinking old wine desires new, for he says the old is good. I think that's a sarcastic comment. Now, I'm, I don't, I'm not a big connoisseur of wine, but I'm told the older it is, the better it is. Okay? And he's, he's saying that you're all set in your, your old ways, and you're comfortable. I'm shaking things up. We're going to do things a new way. Like we're going to touch lepers. And we're going to go to tax collector feasts. Now, here's the essence. I mean, we could talk about, well, what's the difference between the old covenant and the new covenant? Let's not get too complicated. I think in the context of this chapter, he's, he's introducing one primary new way of thinking. And I remember all the way back in seminary, I had a class on missions, and the one thing that I got out of the class was this illustration. The professor said that in the Old Covenant, this is, this is Israel. God is working with the people of Israel. He gives them a land. He gives them a temple. He gives them a really wise king named Solomon. And the mindset was this. Israel, you sit here and the nations should come to you. Like the Queen of Sheba who traveled from Africa all the way to hear the wisdom of Solomon. Um, the true God is in Jerusalem. You want to come uh, meet him? You need to join us. You Gentiles, you need to get circumcised. You need to keep our rituals. But our job is to sit here and, and wait for you to come to us. As we move into the new covenant, we see things reversed. Jesus, in the Great Commission, says, 
Go, therefore, and make disciples. Don't just sit here waiting for them to come to us. You penetrate your world. You touch lepers. You go to places that are uncomfortable. You make a difference. Yes, invite them to church, but sitting and waiting, that was old school. Going and penetrating and risking is the new direction. So, as we close, where might God be calling you to leave the comfortable, clean, safe, and enter into the messy, unclean, maybe even dangerous? And as we go, let's have compassion on physical needs, but don't neglect eternity. How can we deliberately penetrate our worlds? So let's pray. Lord, you left heaven and your glory to come to earth. And you didn't live in a castle. You lived without a place to lay your head. You had compassion on people. Yes, to heal them and to feed them. But also to die for them. And to offer eternal life. And now, Lord, you call us as your disciples to go and make disciples. Holy Spirit, I ask that you would move in each of our hearts. Open our eyes. Show us how we can follow you, the Master. We pray it in Jesus' name.